Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill, Features Writer for Craft and Special Projects at IndieWire. My guest today is Andy Muschietti, the director of DC's The Flash. The Flash is a big leap forward in terms of scale and ambition from Muschietti's previous films, and there's the added pressure of the expectations that come with bringing back Michael Keaton as Batman over 30 years after Tim Burton's classic take on that character. I thought Muschietti rose to the challenge brilliantly, creating a movie that's really buoyant and fun rather than feeling suffocated under all of the technical apparatus, and I wanted to find out how he did it. So here's our conversation. One of the things I really liked about this movie was the way you kind of play with the iconography of earlier DC movies, especially the earlier Batman movies. And so, you know, you've got these iconic images like the Batmobile, the Batwing, and Wayne Manor. And for all of those things, you have to make decisions about what you're going to take from earlier incarnations and where you're going to strike out in your own direction. And I'm curious, what kind of factors motivate those choices of Mm -hmm. where you're going to go with the Tim Burton Batman, where you're going to go with the Zack Snyder, where you're going to do something that's completely your own? It's a a case-by-case thing. In the case of Tim Burton, I was alive when that happened. I was a teenager when 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 the Tim Burton movie came out, and uh, I was blown away w- with it, uh, by it, and uh, the insertion of that story, of course, planned, uh, set up some questions, uh, which is part of the big questionnaire that you you make yourself when you're approaching a movie like this. But it was a fun, it was a fun process. Is how much of it do we do we abide by? How much of the aesthetics? How much of the tone? And uh, I, I was very uh, attracted to the idea of finding Bruce Wayne 30 years later, you know, and seeing him and basically fantasizing about what, what his life would have been uh, 30 years later. Uh, the idea of also the reason why he quit being Batman was very, was very important to me. There's a deleted scene that you will see in the deleted, in the extras of the of the digital version of the DVD where, you, where that scene is, uh, is there. We took it out for, for pacing reasons, but for me, it's very revealing and very important. The idea of transformation was important to me. I didn't want to find uh, Bruce Wayne in the same, the same spot where we left him uh, 30 years ago. I wanted to create a, a bit of backstory where he kept being Batman for a few more years, uh, hence the, the new gadgets and the technology that we see. You see that everything looks like uh, like the designs of the Tim Burton movies, but a little altered. His suit is slightly different. Uh, the Batwing is different. It's a three-seater now, and he has that rotating technology that was that was included. I just had fun like exploring it, and of course there was the process with uh, with Keaton, then the conversations because he basically created the character with Tim Burton. Uh, so there were conversations about this, and we finally we finally agreed on what you see in the movie. But of course, it was uh, you know it was there. There was a lot of talking about what happened to to Bruce. Why do we find him the way that we find him? And uh, we finally agreed uh, on the same thing. So it was uh, for me, of course. The other side of that conversation is uh, you know how do do we integrate a movie that is totally so different? Uh, so one thing I knew for sure it was that I wouldn't try to emulate the cinematography of the movie because it would it would be completely totally different, but also it would alert audiences that the world in, in which Barry lands is a Tim Burton movie. You know, if you go 100 uh, percent, 
if you go in that direction, you would have to have people with hats and and stuff, and you know this like blue, uh, you know, blasted uh, uh, backlights are are so particular in these movies. The level of fantasy in the design is uh, would be prohibitive in my movie. So I try to blend the two worlds, and I think we we managed to to reach a balance where it's still believable that. Uh, the Michael Keaton Batman exists in this in this timeline. Well, you know, you brought up the costume, and I'm curious what kinds of conversations you had with your costume designer about both Keaton's Batman suit and then Supergirl suit, because in both cases you've got very recognizable kind of iconic images, but you're doing little sort of tweaks to them. Yeah, well, it's part of the of of, of the work that that you do as a filmmaker. You want to bring like new things because it's it's just one of those things that that keep you going. You know, I, I had like you know, if you find three or four things in a movie that that you want to prove yourself uh, visually, it's it's one of those things that motivate you. Costume design was one is is only one of them. Uh, this array of visual uh, innovations. But again, it's not gratuitous. There's always a reason for it. Uh, in the case of Batman, it's because he kept being Batman for a while since the last time we saw him. And I wanted to include like, you know, this technical innovations in the suit. And it was just a fun process for everyone, including Keaton and our costume designer, Alexandra Byrne. And in the case of Supergirl, again, I wanted to to see a new version of, of her, of course, like honoring the seed of, of that design, which is the, the movies where we saw Henry Cavill playing uh, Superman. It's part of that same world. So I don't, I didn't want to make it too different in a way where it's like, oh, it's a different fabric, you know, it's a different everything. So I kind of like made a, a, a blend of things and still keep it uh, fresh. And yeah, and also the haircut, you know, it's just, you know, the, the kind of things that I like to do. You mentioned that cinematography, you didn't want to do what Tim Burton did. So uh, what were, for you and your cinematographer and production designer, what did you guys see as the kind of overall guiding principles for the visual style of the movie? Well, we wanted to make a stylized movie, but at the same time, realistic. And we, we after conversations with our cinematographer, Henry Braham, we managed to to find that that balance and he... He basically came in with his with a with a with a way of shooting that entails a handheld camera that is stabilized. It gives you a lot of freedom and it, it gives you the possibility to, to make shots that are like 360. So it's not a studio mode where everything is a little more you know cinematic in the classic way and sometimes uh, a little stiffer. Uh, the camera seems to be liberated and and that takes you a little bit uh closer to the to to a real to feel that what you're seeing is, is more real and also it has that stabilization that makes things a little softer right there's you know it's it's it, and, and also what what that system provided by the way it's a it's a rig that that henry uh designed himself along with uh with stabili which is the company that that makes this uh stabilized rigs it not only brought something aesthetically uh, outstanding in my in my opinion, but also it it, it helped uh, moving forward faster. Uh, I never shot faster in my life than <laughs> with this with, than, than with this rig, yeah. And also the you know the the the, the use of, of wider lenses, which is something that I love, that create a lot of depth and perspective. 
closer to the characters. It's a movie that is all it's it's a lot about emotions and feelings, uh, and I want. Uh, Sometimes I want to be cool, like with the camera very close to the characters to see almost like you see their soul, you know? Well, that brings up, you know, something else which I really loved about the movie, which is I, I did think performances had this really natural quality to them for a movie that has so much technical apparatus. And yeah, yeah. so I'm kind of curious how you how you and the actors keep from being sort of smothered by just the sheer size of the movie because i mean this is a much bigger scale than anything you've done before but i did feel like you still had this nice buoyancy to it that i really yeah. appreciated well but the you know the big the big spectacle is something that you appreciate when you see the movie finished and the audience is uh, uh, see when the movie's finished and it, it it sort of overlaps with the emotional and stuff but when the truth is that when you're in production and you did your job and your homework with the you know with the emotional work uh, with the emotional map and you work with the actors and, and rehearse and stuff, uh, there's really no interference of, you know, the bigger, the bigger parts. There's uh, the bigger parts of the, the spectacle of the movie doesn't interfere with the emotional. Uh, that's how it should be. And I think we did a pretty good job. Like the, uh, I, I, I really like, uh, I thank the actress for that because, uh, uh, Ezra Miller is phenomenal, uh, very committed, and and he and they they have a lot of fun with the with with, with the with the bigger picture of of everything, and and they get it, they want to get involved in the discussion of the bigger scenes as well, but they are very very uh, disciplined and committed to to the emotional work, and 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 they have fun doing it as well. So, yeah. I had the I had I was very lucky to work with these uh, great actors. Yeah, well, the um, the you know the Ezra Miller performance is kind of one of those performances. It's up there with like Jeremy Irons and Dead Ringers or something, where it feels like <laughs> it's two when they're doing the two berries. It really feels like two completely different characters. And I'm curious, just I was you know I didn't I never thought about the technical side of it while I was watching it because yeah. the performance is so strong. It just sucked me in. But then after the movie, I was thinking. Like, how on earth did yeah. you do that? Because there's a lot of scenes where oh. Ezra Miller is acting opposite Ezra Miller. Well, it was a problem at the beginning uh, when we were thinking of, uh, we're talking about the story. Of course, you don't think of the technical problems, right? It's like, okay, they're like two thirds of the movie, they're running, these two guys uh, that are the same character, they're running around. And I'm thinking of a realistic way of, of depicting them with a camera that goes 360. And there's no way that that can happen. If you if you think of the classic techniques of double photography, it's funny that you mentioned Dead Ringers because in the age of Dead Ringers, uh, it was all split screen. It was a uh, it was uh, split screens, or or if the camera was moving, they would put a double that looked like uh, like Jeremy Irons, who was like you know sort of three quarters, so you wouldn't see the face, uh, and it still worked back then. Uh, it's funny because so many actors in this movie did movies where they play themselves twice. Not only Jeremy Irons, but also Michael Keaton did, did a movie called Multiplicity. And uh, well, at this point, it's fair to to talk about it because it's it, it leaked already. But Nicolas Cage also did um, uh, Adaptation, which is another movie where where there's two of them. Of course, that movie wasn't about like you know technical. Uh, 
wonder wonder so you don't you don't think much about it but uh yeah so anyway back going back to the technique uh when we were thinking about this we didn't think of the problems and then the problems appear and it's like okay i want to do a movie that is like doable uh i if i use uh If I use split screen, it's going to be very boring because it's going to be stiff, you know, basically static shots where not only they're boring, but also also I have to send Ezra to makeup and, and hair for half an hour and then bring him back. Same problem with the, the, the next technique in time, which was the motion control, which was a, a, a mechanized uh, crane with a head that basically remembers uh, a movement. And that gives you a little bit of, of movement, but then again, you have to send the actor back to the to the makeup trailer, wait for him for an hour to to be characterized as the same, as the other character, and back. So all these techniques were were not only uh, obsolete but also prohibitive. And that's how we, you know, we went on this on a crazy search for <clears throat> for the new thing uh, that would adapt to the, this vision of the movie, and we found we found it, and it's called volume capture. And basically, what it is is a is is a photorealistic scan of a performance, uh, which has its own problems. Not in the shoot, because on the shoot you do whatever you want with the camera. You put the the actor, in this case Ezra, and you put an actor that that looks similar to him and physical to them in, physically. And then when the movie is finally edited, and you know every single beat of the scene with the takes and everything. You bring Ezra back to this thing called the volume, which is basically a room with a hundred cameras. That what well, the result of that is that you end up with a digital asset uh, of a performance that is photorealistic because it's what it was captured by a hundred cameras, and he's interacting with a projection in the walls where these cameras are that it comes from the scene that went from a camera that was on top of the head of the second actor the day of the shoot it's com it's complicated but it made it made sense but it's the first time that it was done and uh, I'm, i'm kind of proud of it but it was a it was a bit of a leap of faith in that sense because it was like it was never proved before so there was a lot of development to refine uh the 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 process and the and the fruition and the and the final product that we didn't have at the beginning we didn't know so my understanding was correctly that basically half of Ezra Miller's performance is done after you've cut the movie together exactly wow and so is the performance that they're giving uh, during production uh are they just playing one particular berry or are they alternating which berry or They are alternating the character, and the and the criteria was the one that has more lines. That's the character that Ezra will play. Uh -huh. So Ezra was constantly, even in the same day, he was he was he was playing both characters. Uh, so the that that's why Ezra is so magnificent magnificent as an actor, because they can switch uh, in a in a in a in the blink of an eye. Yeah, I, I think they had so much fun doing it, and there's not a lot of people who can who can do that. And so, what kinds of challenges does that create for you in the editing? Because I would think, you know, usually when you're editing, a big part of editing is editing performances, and here you're sort of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it seems to me like that would be a really challenging process. Well, it's a, it was a very long process. It was one. It was an entire year of post production. Uh, but the thing is that. Uh, Ezra is so good 
uh, and the and the and the actor that was playing uh, the other guy, the other Barry, is someone that not only was we we picked him out of uh, uh, similar uh, physical similitude, but also someone that could pick on the all the mannerisms of Ezra playing Barry, always the other Barry, whatever the other Barry was. <laughs> And uh, and someone that could learn and adapt, and we it was a process of you know of, of, of the, the election of that actor was was part of a, of, of, of Ezra and I. Uh, Ezra had a lot to do with it because it, it was a it was a thing of feel, you know, and chemistry. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was a crazy process. I, I I never done anything like that, but I you know when you believe, you believe. And uh, you're more optimist. You think that it will go good, and sometimes you do it without knowing. It's a bit of a leap of faith. But Ezra, as well, you know, they 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 jumped on the same uh, on the same cliff as we did, and and we decided it was a great idea. And the and the studio, you know, it has uh, the studio had its, its its hesitations a little bit the beginning because it wasn't it wasn't something that was proved before. But uh, they 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 finally trusted us and our enthusiasm, and and they went for it. Yeah, I mean, well, that's another thing. You know, to me, I just again looking at this movie, I just think about not only are you dealing with something that is ten times more ambitious in terms of scale than what you've done before, but then you've also got, I would assume, so many external pressures. I mean, not just the studio because of the budget and because you're doing things that have never been done before, but also, you know, I'm assuming that they always want to protect the franchise, all those kinds of things. How do you just psychologically mm -hmm. keep yourself, I guess, you know what I mean? Like, how do you keep all that noise? Like, obviously you have to incorporate, you have to listen to what everybody's telling you, but how do you sort through all of that and keep from it just feeling like your head's inside of a pinball machine? Look, it's, it's an it's very it's an instinctive uh, thing that it's I think I never felt any more pressure than when I I, I, I did my first short film uh, and it's a it's a it's a process of learning about you know uh, about your, your trusting your instincts and uh, and being excited about them finding things finding things that excite you right. And uh, so it all comes from inside, from the inside out. And when that, you know, when you sort of finesse that, that kind of instincts, everything else is secondary. Uh, you can't make a movie that, that doesn't reflect your instincts. That's what filmmakers do. You know, they, they have a vision and the vision comes from inside. Uh, it's, it's a, when the vision comes from outside, it's a disaster. And I'm not saying that movies that, you know, uh, that there's all the movies that, that have more interference are all bad, but I think that the, the filmmaker always is on the search for, 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 for a vision of the movie that comes from the inside. And, and many times, many times the studios try want to respect that. In the case of, of DC, they, they, they absolutely did it. And they, they respected my, my instinct and my visions because this, they, I think they believe that there's a purest form of, there's a pure form of, of filmmaking that 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 results from 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 chasing one vision instead of making you know it about a comic committee uh, 
I, I, like a horse made, you know, a horse made by a committee is a camel. Mm-hmm. And I, and, and they, you know, we, we worked together with, 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 with Warner Brothers before, and they have enough trust in, in us and in me to, to, to let me, you know, follow my instincts and vision. Oh, of course, you know, it's not about only my instincts. It's a lot of, you know, work with Christina Hudson, an incredible screen, screenwriter, and of course the cast, uh, incredible. Ezra had so much to do with the, with the, with the success, with the cinematic success. I don't know, like, uh, in the, uh, um, uh, uh, the box office yet. It, it didn't come out yet, but I, I think it's a success because of the combination of, of our all combined uh, instincts. Well, in, in that, you know, you said you're in like a year of post or something. Um, yeah. And like, I'm not, you know, I don't want to get into the whole tabloid kerfuffle of Ezra Miller stuff, but does the noise of that, is that something else you have to be bigger that impacts what you're doing? Or is it something you just have to shut out entirely? Uh, truly, truly, I, I, I believed in this movie so much from the beginning that I, I knew that when people saw it, they were going to they were, they were love it. I mean, some of most of the people, I guess. I don't know, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't uh, something that I was that I was too concerned about, honestly. Yeah. Well, I know I'm running running out of time here, but I want to ask you one more thing about the editing because I read that you had a sort of portable editing system on set. Yeah, yeah. Um, explain what that is and and how it was used. Well, that was something that I never done before, which is having a, an editor on set. Uh, and that came uh, originally from the from from the limitation of not being able of having uh, my my historic editor, which is Jason Valentine, uh, who wasn't able to come to London. So he so uh, that's when I we decided to incorporate a second editor, uh, Paul Matchless. Uh, who is a brilliant uh, British uh, ed- editor. Well, he's Australian, but he's lived in, in England for most of his life. Uh, and Paul had a lot of experience doing on-set editing already because he, he made uh, most of Edgar, Edgar Wright's movies. Uh, and as of late, he was always on set with him because they, they, they did, you know, they were putting up scenes that that involved cutting a scene like creating a scene from an existing song like in baby driver and stuff and the idea of of having an editor in on set was was very exciting to me and then i realized how good it was because not only you can uh you can do things like that but also uh you have the you know you have the notes from an editor with uh, while you're doing doing it and again, Paul Matchley was was not a, the the guy who interfered a lot, but he would tell me, you know, it would be great if every once in a while he would come and said, "This is, uh, you know, at the end, uh, at the middle of the day, he would he would bring me to his to his um, to his station and show me the scene." And that's priceless, of course. Like it's it's not every production can afford to have like that an editor on set. Or, or, or two editors, but uh, I, I was lucky to have that resource and I think that creatively it helped the movie a lot. Mm-hmm.